You're off to age-appropriate instruction. Was anybody placing bets on whether I'd remember or not? <laughs> Place is important, isn't it? When we first meet somebody, we, one of the first questions we ask them is, where are you from? That's because place gives a context to the rest of the conversation. History happens in a place. Even eternity happens in a place. Each of us lives in a place. Why is HGTV so popular? Because it focuses on place. Place is very dear and near to our hearts. People love to think about their place and spend money on their place and fix up their place and express themselves through their place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Places have status. They have a reputation. If I say Chernobyl, an image pops into your mind. If I say Woodstock, another image pops into your mind. If I say Disney World, another image pops into your mind. Events happen in places. People are born, they live, they die in places. People give a place significance, especially when they leave and move on to someplace else and say they're from this place and they become famous and then that place takes on another significance. Especially when they're people of God acting in the plan and program of God. One thing that makes place important is that it involves people, provides context for people. So this morning we're going to look at place and then we're going to look at the people involved. Last week we saw that the child given would become the ruler of the world forever and ever. Today we're going to see the place where he came from and what significance that place holds. So today's passage comes from Micah. Micah was one of those prophets who is grouped with, with 11 others in a, a group of the uh, Old Testament books that are uh, known as the minor prophets. We're known as the minor prophets not because they're unimportant, but because in the Jewish scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures, they're grouped as a group of 12 called the writings. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, so the time period that we're looking at is roughly the same as last, last week's uh, time period. But Micah mentions a place in his prophecy in chapter 5 and verse 2. It's called Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah means region of fruitfulness. Bethlehem was the place where Jacob, a grandson of Abraham, buried his beloved wife Rachel. Bethlehem was also the birthplace of David, Israel's most famous king. It was the setting for the book of Ruth with its love story of grace and redemption. In many ways, foreshadowed the work of Jesus on the cross. And Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem. As you'll see on the map, it's very close. One wonders how it could be overlooked or missed. With all these important events and its proximity to Jerusalem, 
Why was it that in two places in the history of Israel, when clans are listed and villages and towns are listed, especially in Judah, Bethlehem was left out? There's a list in Joshua chapter 15. There's a list in Nehemiah 11. Both times, Bethlehem is passed over. So Bethlehem seemed to have a self-image problem. Bethlehem seemed to have this sort of uh, idea that uh, they'd been forgotten. They'd been overlooked. And so that's perhaps why Micah's prophecy in chapter 5, verse 2, begins with the sort of half-apologetic tone uh, of reassurance that in spite of these uh, historical overlooks of Bethlehem's existence, Bethlehem had not been passed over by God. Indeed, it would play a prominent role in his plan for the future. And so Micah 5.2 reads as follows. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So the name Bethlehem means, and names are important, as all of you know, house of bread. The name Ephrathah means region of fruitfulness. Thus, Bethlehem is the house of bread in the region of fruitfulness. and Bethlehem will be the birthplace of the Messiah roughly 730 years after Micah's prophecy. What a fitting place for the bread of life to be born. Micah's prophecy comes at a time of great spiritual darkness and sin and stands out like a light in that darkness. In just another century, Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom, will go into exile following their northern cousins. Micah's prophecy will be fulfilled as we fast forward about 735 years to the time of Caesar Augustus who orders a census to be taken. The scene and the time is still one of oppression and spiritual darkness among the Jews. But what happens in a place is significant because of its people. Christmas is going to happen for the first time. When we look at the people involved, we find that there's a competent emperor, there's a compassionate carpenter, There's a God-favored virgin about to have a baby. There are ordinary Jewish shepherds. There are Gentile wise men. And there's a paranoid murderous king. Competent emperor, compassionate carpenter, a God-favored virgin in the final days of her pregnancy, ordinary Jewish shepherds, Gentile wise men, and a paranoid murderous king. First person is the competent emperor. Arguably, Caesar Augustus was the best emperor of the Roman Empire. He had policies put in place, and he uh, organized uh, the uh, empire politically so that it would enjoy 200 years of more or less peace, known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Caesar is revamping his tax policy. And uh, he needs to take a census so he can collect the right amount of taxes. To get an accurate census, everybody has to go to their ancestral town and register, thus confirming that they're still alive 
and their occupation, their marital status. I think this was a poll tax or a head tax. It wasn't an income tax. So Luke 2, 1 to 3 tells us that in those days, that would be the days of Luke 1 when the angel visited uh, Elizabeth and the angel visited Mary, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. In the plan of God, Bethlehem was the ancestral home of both the compassionate carpenter and the um, God-favored virgin. Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David, so they, living in Nazareth, packed up for a long walk, at least a three-day journey, as the map will show, from Nazareth in the north. It's about 90 miles to Bethlehem in the south. The Bible doesn't say there was a donkey involved, but we uh, would so like to believe that there was that tradition has sort of put a donkey into the picture for Mary to ride on. But as far as we know, they made their way as best they could. Maybe they had to walk. I don't know. They were headed for Bethlehem. It would take them three days. And events over the next months would make Bethlehem Ephrathah, the house of bread in the region of fruitfulness, a town never to be forgotten again. Luke 2, 4 through 7 describes the journey itself. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. Well, you can imagine. You can imagine Mary traveling during the final days of her pregnancy, arriving in Bethlehem, house of bread, crowded with taxpayers, trying to register, grumpy, presumably, because they were having to pay taxes, all gathered together and no suitable accommodation. Crowded town, an obscure town, forgotten town, but for now, crowded to overflowing. The next group of people in the Bethlehem drama are the Jewish shepherds, ordinary guys, out in the field, looking after sheep. Sheep are skittish animals. They attract predators. Sheep attract thieves. They're easily frightened, and if one is startled, then she or he might run blindly off in any direction. The rest of the flock will likely follow them. So keeping watch over sheep consists mostly of keeping them safe and keeping them calm. If they panic, they're not safe. I had a rancher who ran sheep and cattle in my church in Colorado, and he lost 400 sheep in one afternoon because two of them were headed for the cliff, stopped when they got there, and the rest of them followed and pushed the two right off the edge of the cliff. So this is not an easy job. 
Shepherds have to be prepared for anything. Luke 2 tells us anything was about to happen. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A manger? Who puts babies in a manger? Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told them. How fitting that some of the first to see the good shepherd after his birth were shepherds from the hills outside of Bethlehem. And then there are the Gentile wise men. They came after Jesus was born, but we don't know how long after. These were men who studied the stars. These were men of learning, men of history, men of books and scrolls. They studied the stars and they noted movements and constellations. They assigned meanings to them and tried to understand future events in the light of what they saw in the skies. God used their interest in his creation to communicate his plan. So they traveled a long distance. The east could mean Arabia, or it could mean Babylon, present-day Iraq. It could even mean Persia, present-day Iran, or even further, we don't know. Herod asked them when the star appeared, and from their reply, he decided to murder the Bethlehem boys under the age of two. So it seems that they had not been traveling more than two years, perhaps not that long, but certainly not more. And Matthew chapter 2 tells us in two sections about the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And now we'll jump to verse 9 and then come back to verse 3 when we talk about Herod. After the wise men had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We don't know how many they were. there were. They were certainly not kings. Tradition says there were three and even gives them names. But they presented the baby with three kinds of gifts. Gold, the most precious metal they knew of. The early church fathers felt that they gave gold because they attributed deity to this child lying in, in, in his mother's arms. They gave him frankincense, and tradition suggests that frankincense symbolizes purity, and for Jesus would symbolize the sinlessness of his life. Myrrh was an embalming ointment and foreshadowed his death. These are the gifts that they gave him, and they symbolize different things, pointing to his life and death. The last person we look at this morning is the paranoid murderous king. This is Herod, and Matthew 2, 3 through 8 tells us about Herod. When Herod heard this, that is, we've come looking for the king of the Jews, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod, <clears throat> Herod's title was King of the Jews at this point. He would live until 4 B.C., and so these events take place somewhere around 6 or between 6 and 4 B.C., we think. So the calendar's a little off. He was the king of the Jews, although he was only half Jewish. He was an Edomite, the other half. That would be a descendant of Esau. He was also nearing the end of his life. He was paranoid, he was sick, and still grasping on to power. He was known as Herod the Great, not because he was a good king, but because of his building and engineering projects. And he was no stranger to murder and intrigue, having murdered two of his own sons because he thought they were plotting to overthrow him. At this point in his life, his paranoia is great, his illness is increasing. When he hears that reputable wise men are looking for an infant king of the Jews, troubled is putting it mildly. All those who had hitched their star to Herod's wagon, or hitched their wagon to Herod's star, are troubled also. If there's going to be competition for Herod's position, they want to assess their future loyalties. And if Herod hears the term, another king of the Jews is born, he's going to wonder how that's going to threaten his agenda, compete with him for position. So our drama includes the place, Bethlehem Ephrathah, house of bread, 
region of fruitfulness and these people. Competent emperor, compassionate carpenter, and a God-favored virgin, ordinary Jewish shepherds, Gentile wise men, and a murderous paranoid king. But the real star of the show is the baby. A far better ruler than Caesar Augustus would ever be when he comes again. In many ways, ordinary like the shepherds, yet became the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Wiser than the wise men, and he gave up riches far greater than the ones he received from them. Unlike Herod, he was psychologically secure. He traveled further than any of these when he made a journey all the way to heaven. We learn lessons from all of these people. We learn lessons from their activity in the story. From the ordinary Jewish shepherds, we learn to act on the message. This is not just any old message. And they understood that. And so they acted on what they heard. Let's go, they said, to Bethlehem. And so they did. Let's go to the house of bread. And so they did. They believed the message and they acted on what they heard. From the Gentile wise men, we learned to be diligent students of God's revelation. These people studied everything. They first saw the star in a far distant place where they lived. They had it revealed to them that this star signified an extraordinary birth, the birth of the king of the Jews. They didn't search the skies only. They had texts and history and writings to consult. They probably had the books of Moses. They probably had other portions of the Hebrew scriptures. They would have had knowledge of Melchizedek, the ancient king priest of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. They probably would have known the Jewish history of redemption from Egypt. Perhaps they came from Ur of the Chaldees, and Abram's name was one of their genealogical, one of the lists, uh, names recited in their genealogical list. God didn't show them a star without giving them a context, you see. His revelation to Gentiles has always been more than adequate, and this is an example. They were diligent in their study. They were diligent in their seeking after God, and God rewarded them. They too believed and acted upon the revelation of the king that they had. From the compassionate carpenter, Joseph is a good and upright, faithful man. He's puzzled, though, in Matthew chapter 1, until he's told by the angel to go ahead and take Mary as his wife. On the one hand, the message of the angel would have given him great relief because it confirmed Mary's story and her innocence. On the other hand, being a mature person, he would have been able to see the complexities of the road that lay ahead. Nevertheless, he heard and trusted and obeyed. And from the God-favored virgin, Mary, she's a great example of faith. She hears the message from the angel, and like Joseph, she's puzzled, but she submits. And she says, Behold, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. 
When it was all over, in the weeks and months ahead, Mary thought deeply about the visit from the shepherds and their encounter with the angels. It all seems to center around Mary giving birth to her first child in the stable. The bed was hay, the cradle was a feed trough. Certainly Joseph assisted, but the Bible doesn't say. It's Mary who does it all, delivers the baby, wraps the baby, lays the baby in a manger. Why this rustic, primitive birthplace for the king of kings? Simple. Obvious reason, there's no room anywhere else. But wait, there's more. Because the not-so-obvious reason for this rustic, primitive birthplace is bigger than a crowded town and a crowded inn. Why didn't the creator of heaven and earth, who admittedly took a big step down in humbling himself to be incarnated at all, arrange better conditions for himself than he did? Because he was a savior first, and a king later. He's the promised Messiah. He's Christ, the anointed one. He's God with us. Saviors save those who are in deep, deep trouble. If people weren't in trouble, if people didn't have a huge problem, we wouldn't need a Savior. The lengths to which God went in sending His Son was a measure of our deep trouble. In the program of God, this was stage number one of salvation. In embracing the world he'd created, he embraced all of it. Fallen, sinful, poverty-stricken, not the way it should be, full of angry rebels out to get him. That meant that he didn't demand status, but rather humbled himself. And it's important to note that he humbled himself. He didn't have humbling imposed upon him by the conditions of the world into which he came. He didn't have humbling imposed upon him by the innkeeper or the crowded conditions in the town. He did it to himself. It would be a characteristic of his life, his whole life. And Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says, He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the circumstances of humility and humbleness around his birth would continue through his life. He humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. No one would ever be able to look at Jesus and say, my life by comparison is awful. He sure had it pretty good. He doesn't really know how hard my life is. No, the poorest of the world's poor can look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth and say, yeah, he knows my pain. He walked in my shoes. He gets it. The prisoner undergoing torture can look at the Son of God going to the cross and say, yeah, he's been there. He's been in my place. When we experience suffering that seems unbearable, loss that's excruciating, rejection that cuts us to the core, we can know that Jesus experienced all those things. So Hebrews can talk about a sympathetic high priest who has felt the pain that we have and is present with us in it.
we suffer nothing greater than Jesus suffered, no matter how we might feel about it. And we know this because from the very beginning, even as a baby, Jesus demonstrates humility. From the moment of his birth, Jesus shows us how to deal with adversity and hardship. From before his first breath, Jesus teaches us about unconditional submission to his Father's will. You see, there were no deal-breaking conditions that he assigned on his coming. He takes it all just as he finds it. No matter what the cost, he comes prepared to pay it. One more thing I want us to see in Micah 5, 2. The ruler, Jesus, was to go out of Bethlehem or from Bethlehem on behalf of Jehovah, for me, the text says, the Father. In doing so, Jesus would bring glory to God. So, paradoxically, by humbling himself, he gives glory to the Father. He dies so that we might have life. He comes into the darkness and he brings light. He transfers those who trust him from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. He makes a way for his enemies to become his friends, and not just his friends, but his family. So he teaches us about humility, and in the process he glorifies God. And we rejoice in the coming of the baby, but we have to see the manger in the shadow of the cross. That's why Christmas is such a wonderful time of celebration and Easter is such a wonderful time of reflection and self-examination and commitment and heart change, repentance. What will our response be like to what we've heard? Will we go back to our daily life like the shepherds glorifying and praising God for what we have seen and heard? Will we go back this week to wherever we work or wherever we play or wherever we go to edu get education? Glorifying and praising God for his gift? Will we seek him diligently like the wise men and recognize him for who he really is? Will we like Herod and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem see his, him as competition for our agenda? See him as interfering with our plans, someone who will upset our apple cart. Well, those are all questions we have to answer in the depths of our heart. If you're curious about Jesus, you've never put your trust in him as Savior. You've always thought Christmas was just this big time of getting and giving. If you're curious about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the bread of life who was born in the house of bread, if you want to know more about the good shepherd who was visited first by ordinary Jewish shepherds, the king of kings who was adored by Gentile wise men, if you sense that things are not right between you and God and you would like to be forgiven of your sin and be made righteous in God's sight, you want to stop rebelling and lay down your weapons of arrogance and self-sufficiency, then this Christmas could be the most meaningful of any Christmas in your life. Heavenly Father, we are ever so grateful for the gift of your Son.
when we could do nothing to help ourselves, when we didn't even know that we had a problem, when we couldn't recognize the depths of our depravity. You came into, your, into our world, your world, and you made a huge change. You changed everything. And this morning we want to thank you, praise you, glorify you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to talk further about what it might mean to make Jesus Christ your Savior and trust him with your everlasting soul, I'll be up here and we'll wait if you'd like to come and talk. So let me send you out into the coming week with the words of the angel. Don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has been born in David's town, Bethlehem, house of bread, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Go in his name.